0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: From Podcast One.
0: Coming up in this episode of Target USA. How did the U.S. know what Russia was going to do in Ukraine before they did it?
1: I think this episode tells us that we have really good multi-source intelligence about what's going on in Russia today.
0: Amy Ziegert is a senior fellow at both the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute.
1: It looks like it's not just technical capabilities, not just intercepted communications. It looks like from the public reporting, we have human sources, and that's particularly important since we know we had a high-level human source who had to be exfiltrated from Russia after the 2016 election. So it looks like we have more than one source uh, highly placed inside the inner circle in the Kremlin.
0: Coming up on this episode of Target USA.
1: The National Security Podcast.
0: From WTOP in Washington, D.C. and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Intelligence has played a major role in the war in Ukraine. The U.S. has never in history declassified so much intelligence at once. It's been used as a weapon to stop or impede the Kremlin's plan to invade and take over Ukraine. What was behind the decision to do that? How much of an impact did this move have? Amy Ziegert is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Freeman Spogli Institute at Stanford University. She's also the author of five books, one of which we'll talk about today. We'll also talk about the impact of all of this on Russia and Vladimir Putin. Amy, you have a fabulous new book. It's called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms. And, um, you know, I've long been following your work and long been covering the kind of things that you are an expert in. And this is the first opportunity I've had a chance to engage with you about stuff that absolutely fascinates me and most of the world. And it seems to have a very useful purpose right now, especially unfortunately, because of the war in Ukraine. And I had a chance to engage with you and some, some other brilliant folks out at the Hoover Institution not too long ago. And one of the things we talked about specifically um, was how the U.S. was using its intelligence um, to deal with Russia and what Russia was planning. And in fact, you know, they were actually able to get out ahead of uh, what Russia was doing. And so I I wonder if you might not indulge me for a moment before we talk some 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 about your book how they did that and why they did that
1: sure well first thanks for having me on i've been following your reporting for a long time so it's nice for us to talk about national security uh, affairs together i really appreciate it Um, we're seeing changes in intelligence playing out in real time And as you and I talked about before, I think there are really three goals of the Biden administration's unprecedented strategy of declassifying intelligence. So I think it's important for your listeners to understand this really is historic. Never before has the United States revealed so much, so fast, so specifically, uh, so consistently about what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Why did they do it? I think the first reason is information warfare. This is a fight not just on the battlefield, but it's in the information space. And so the Biden administration's declassification of intelligence said, don't believe the lie Vladimir Putin's going to tell you. He's saying he's not going to invade. Don't you believe it for one minute. And you might remember uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine at one point said, why are you hyping the threat, United States, you know, we think it's ruining my economy. We think he's not going to invade. This is really important to uh, get the truth out before the lie. So uh, we know from psychology research that uh, it's hard to change people's minds once they believe something. So getting the truth out first helps fight that deception. So that's goal number one, information warfare inoculation. Goal number two, impose friction on Vladimir Putin. He's a KGB man. He is, uh, I think, undoubtedly stewing about uh, how do the allies know what they know? Who can he trust? What technical systems can he trust? And the more he's focused on his own uh, intelligence capabilities and who's betraying him, uh, the more he's on his back foot, not his front foot, with respect to the invasion. And I think CIA Director Burns alluded to that when he testified before Congress a couple weeks ago. And then the third goal, I think, is really to force countries to take a side. So you see the declassification of intelligence that the Chinese knew Russia was going to invade before the Beijing Olympics were over. Uh, that the Chinese were asked to assist Russia in this war. And when you debunk the narrative that Putin is throwing out to the world, you make it harder for countries like China to try to play both sides. So I think they're trying all three of those things with this strategy.
0: So, Amy, what does this tell you in terms of the release of this intelligence? What does this tell you about the recovery of the U.S. Uh, after Edward Snowden did what he did and I think it was 2014 or 2015? Because, you know, we were under the impression that at least some were saying the US intelligence was gutted. You know, I don't think that was ever the case, but it was certainly on the, it was certainly damaged by what Snowden did. What does this tell you about that?
1: I think this episode tells us that we have really good multi-source intelligence about what's going on in Russia today. It looks like it's not just technical capabilities, not just intercepted communications. It looks like from the public reporting, we have human sources. And that's particularly important since we know we had a high level human source who had to be exfiltrated from Russia after the 2016 election. So it looks like we have more than one source uh, highly placed inside the inner circle in the Kremlin. But, you know, JJ, I I just taught my students uh, this past week, the first time uh, my new class on intelligence, and I posed this question to them, which was, Let's say Putin, after the intelligence had been released, let's say he had decided not to invade Ukraine. Would we be talking about an intelligence failure or an intelligence success? So we know that the mm. intelligence said he's going to invade, he's going to invade. Uh, then if if the intelligence uh, creates a, an incentive for a policymaker to do something, in this case, Putin decides, you know what? The Americans know what I'm up to. I'm not going to invade. It looks like a rock WMD it looks like an intelligence failure when in reality it would be an intelligence success so it's a little bit more complicated than we make it out to be
0: so that said and everything that's taken place because you know we we spoke last several weeks ago this was before or maybe even as some of this some of these developments were taking place inside russia where his defense minister disappeared for two weeks and you know there were these FSB letters that came out um, talking about how mixed up and confusing the whole operation was. And then there was this, I guess, revelation that Vladimir Putin may not have even known. And I think President Biden said this himself, that he's he believes that Putin had been misled about a lot of the intelligence, about a lot of what was going on. I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I know you're very good with uh, dealing with all of your tools. What does this tell you, if any of this is true, about what's going on in Vladimir Putin's world?
1: Well, I think, you know, nobody knows what's really going on inside the Kremlin right now, what is being told to Putin, what he believes. But we do know a couple of things. We know it's hard even in democracies. For intelligence officers to speak truth to power, to tell policymakers information they may not want to hear. It's always hard to do that. And we know it's even harder to do that in authoritarian regimes like Russia or China. Telling the boss the bad news when you could be executed for bringing the bad news is a pretty difficult thing. So I think it's reasonable to believe that Putin is not getting great information about uh what's going on on the battlefield that he's probably not getting full information about how badly his intelligence agencies have misperceived uh how the ukrainians would react on the ground and even if he is getting good information putin seems to be caught in a lot of cognitive biases that commonly afflict uh all of us that you believe things that you want to believe more than information that may cast doubt on what you what you want to know or what you want to hear I think it's a a stew of all of the above that we're seeing. And it makes him more dangerous because we don't know what he's getting and we don't know how he's thinking.
0: Mm -hmm. So one more question about this and then to the book. Um, What is it about all of this that I haven't asked you that perhaps nobody has asked you that you think is most important about this entire situation uh, as it relates to Russia and, you know, what we know about them, what, you know, what, you know, the, the, the developments in the unprecedented use of intelligence, you know, what we're seeing now in Bucha, um, some of the things that are just going on behind the scenes. What do you think is the most important element of all of this that we probably should focus on as we look at this war, which seems to be shifting from Russia's original goals to now something else?
1: Oh, that's such a good question. I think what hasn't gotten enough attention is the interaction between the classified intelligence that we're hearing that's really influencing the world and the publicly available intelligence that we're hearing that is also influencing what we're, what we're thinking, what we're feeling, what we're doing. So just the headlines right now, we can see satellite imagery being used by news organizations to verify that the Russians were in fact responsible for the atrocities in Bucha and other cities near Kyiv. Now, the Russians have denied it. They've claimed it's a false uh, story put out by the Americans and the Ukrainians. But it's journalists using satellite imagery. We would never have imagined this being possible 10 years ago. Publicly available satellite imagery that used to be only the province of spy agencies to debunk the Russian narrative. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think it's something that we don't quite understand. What's the interaction effect between this publicly available intelligence and then declassified information and policy on the other on the other hand?
0: It's really interesting you say that because I was just thinking the very same thing, albeit on a much more basic level. Um, you know, there, Russia's denying that it did anything in Bucha, saying somebody else did it. It was staged. But they are using this decades-old lie, but it's up against modern technology, which says, you're lying. It says, we know you did it, and here's how we know. And so that's really interesting about that, that they they seem to be moving at a snail's pace now. But anyway, more importantly, your book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, Why why did you write that book?
1: Well, I originally wrote a different book. So I started off writing what I call my Intelligence 101 book. I was teaching at the time at UCLA and I was struck by the fact that my students didn't know much about intelligence and what they knew they learned from the movies and from television. I did polling of my students and it was really stunning the ex- the extent to which spy themed entertainment influenced their views. And I did national polls and I found the same thing. So I wanted originally to write a book that I could use to teach my students and that they might wanna give their parents to. And then what happened was the world changed and as technology became so much more important, what I realized was I needed to write about intelligence 2.0 and how emerging technologies are totally challenging every aspect of intelligence. And so I hope that the book covers both now. It's a little bit about what you wanna know about intelligence, but we're afraid to ask. But I think even more important is discussing and analyzing How all of these new technologies from the Internet to commercial satellite imagery to AI are changing who does intelligence, not just governments anymore, and how they do it.
0: Yeah. You know, that's interesting. Um, So did did it factor in at all that people may now know more uh, for sure? about intelligence than they did when you first started thinking about this. And the reason I asked this question is there is a guy who is a forensic scientist and he told me 16, 17 years ago that people were so seduced by the CSI series that they saw on television, that they thought all that stuff that you see in television, which through the magic of editing suggests that certain things can be done. And, you know, but it can't, you know, you can't, and he said, I think you can't exclude one voice from, you know, another voice. And this was back when we were all trying to figure out if that was Osama bin Laden's voice on some uh, tape or something that couriers were delivering. And Al Jazeera had gotten a hold of it and somehow had made it into the mainstream. And he was saying, no, we can't do that yet. So I'm just asking, I guess, are we at the point now where 101 is 2.0 now because people have learned so much? <laughs>
1: I think so. You know, that CSI effect is so interesting and it, it's a great example of how entertainment affects reality. And I think we see that with intelligence too. We're, you know, one of the things I do in the book, as you know, is I track this proliferation of spy-themed entertainment. Hollywood's producing twice the number of spy-themed blockbusters now as it did in the 1980s. And so we tend to have this view that intelligence agencies can do anything, track anyone, go anywhere. And I'm reminded of, you know, former CIA director Mike Hayden was in Los Angeles. This is before we actually found Osama bin Laden. And he gave a speech. And the first question out of the box was, General Hayden, we spend billions of dollars on intelligence. We've landed a man on the moon. Why can't we find Osama bin Laden? And General Hayden shot back without missing a beat. I'll tell you why. Because he's hiding.
0: <laughs> and that is so typical of him.
1: <laughs> so- <laughs> and it's- and his point was it's make, the movies make it look easy. It's much more difficult in real life.
0: Yeah, that is so typical of General Hayden. I remember the first time I had a chance to interview him, I, and I we were talking about Russia, actually, and you know, and comparing Russia to Al Qaeda. He said, you know, back during the Cold War, uh, Russians were easy to find, but hard to kill. And he said, Al Qaeda is The opposite of that and so I asked him recently if that had changed and he said yes it's changed but you know he always had a great fast wickedly smart answer for anybody who asked him those kinds of questions so I want to ask you if you would because I know you've got a great response for this one the three types of intelligence that you write about in your book which is the most important
1: So the three types of intelligence I write about in the book are the first is indisputable facts, right? Things that or as Secretary Rumsfeld famously put it, the known knowns, Uh, you know, he was castigated for his Rumsfeld poetry when he gave this press conference during the Iraq war. But Rumsfeld was on to something important. So these are questions that have answers. Does China have an aircraft carrier? And U.S. intelligence agencies happen to know the answer. The answer is yes, China has an aircraft carrier. That's kind of the the bread and butter of a lot of intelligence, the indisputable facts. The second type of intelligence is information or questions that have answers, but U.S. intelligence agencies may not know those answers. So how does a Chinese aircraft carrier perform under various conditions at sea? That's an answerable question. There's an answer to it. But U.S. intelligence agencies may not know it because you have to have someone on board that ship or you have to have sensors that detect over a long period of time how that ship is performing. And then there's the third and really vexing type of intelligence, which is the the last category of, of Rumsfeld, the unknown unknowns. So these are questions that no one knows the answer to. So the example I often give there is how long will China's Communist Party remain in power? If we asked China's leader Xi Jinping that question and he answered it honestly, he wouldn't know either. It's something he doesn't know. We often don't know our own intentions. Maybe Vladimir Putin doesn't even know what Vladimir Putin is going to do next. So it's that adversarial intention is in that category of really difficult types of information for intelligence agencies to deal
0: with. So I assume that your answer is the last one is the most important. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, okay. Um, that being said, um, how – there are so many unknowns, and it seems to be the more platforms that we have, the more technology that we have, the more we know, and thus the more we know there are more things that are out there or at least the more things we're exposed to, we may not know what they are, what what they're doing, what they mean. Is intelligence evolving in such a way to benefit, I guess, intelligence agencies staying ahead of platforms and technologies that are constantly introducing new thoughts and ideas and even new ways of looking at things?
1: Boy, I wish the answer to your question was, yes, intelligence agencies are adapting fast enough, but the answer is no, they're not. And I think they're not adapting fast enough in two key ways. The first is our agencies are struggling to understand how these technologies are shaping the world, right? So we think about synthetic biology or artificial intelligence or quantum computing. We need to have insight into the technical details of these technologies and what the implications could be. And in order to do that, we need people who are experts in engineering, it's really hard to recruit the best experts in engineering coming out of graduate school and universities and industry to go into the intelligence community today so we need to we need to do a better job understanding the technology and then the second piece is we're not moving fast enough to use these emerging technologies so these you know intelligence analysts today like all of us are drowning in too much information too much data And intelligence, as you know, JJ, is really about insight. How do we have better insight into the world? And part of that is figuring out what information is really valuable and what information you should set aside and finding patterns in large amounts of data. And we need uh, artificial intelligence and other technical tools to do that. And it's really hard for intelligence agencies to bring those technologies in from the outside.
0: So, is it safe to say that algorithms, which is, you know, part of your title there, are really either determining or will determine a lot about what we're able to, to know and to do in terms of intelligence in the future? Or is it something that should be paid attention to more and manipulated and utilized more? But, or maybe maybe a better word is managed more as we look forward to what's next in terms of intelligence?
1: Well, I think algorithms always have to be managed because if you don't have humans teaming with machines, then you're going to get the same biases in the data and then you're going to get biased results. So you have to have good data going in and you have to understand what machines can do better than humans and what humans can do better than machines. So as I think about AI, I think about you know, AI can free up humans from the mundane tasks like identifying surface-to-air missile sites over a large swath of territory. Machines are really good at pattern recognition. doesn't require that much judgment. They can learn how to identify things over time. But what humans can do that machines can't do is they can be creative. They can ask, why are those surface-to-air missile sites there What are the possible reasons China might have an increase in its nuclear missile silos, for example? Algorithms aren't going to just spit out that answer. You have to have humans do that. So it's the two together that I think are really powerful.
0: So looking at where we're going and where you think we should go, um, you've said already the U.S. is not leveraging some elements that are at at its disposal right now when it comes to intelligence, what needs to be done to get on track to do the things that are necessary based on what you see coming in the future for the U.S. as threats or somewhere between threats and, and concerns? Um, what needs to be done in terms of uh, the U.S. government's uh, approach to intelligence?
1: So I think the most important thing that needs to happen is we need to create a new intelligence agency that is dedicated to open source or publicly available information. What we've seen is it used to be that intelligence was almost all about secrets. Our intelligence agencies prize secrets. It's one former officer told me. You know, we think inside intelligence agencies is a, if a piece of information cost a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars. And that's not true anymore. With all of this publicly available information, that race for insight that we just talked about comes from publicly available information first and foremost. Secrets are still important, but now that open source intelligence is foundational. And yet spy agencies are always gonna put secrets first. So they're never, open source intelligence is never gonna get the attention it deserves. It's never gonna be foundational without a separate new standalone agency dedicated to open source intelligence. If I had to pick one big change to radically transform our intelligence agencies, that would be it.
0: Do you get any inkling that this is something that authorities or people that should be thinking about this are thinking about it?
1: I do. And so I served on a task force by uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which was co-chaired by our current director of national intelligence of Real Haines. This discussion about should we have an open source agency and if we should, where should it be and what should it do was part of that task force. So I think there's a widespread recognition that this is a problem that has to be solved. Now, the debate is how best to solve it because there's no perfect organizational design. And so there's a lot of discussion now among experts inside and outside of intelligence agencies about what specifically would a new agency look like and how could we create it to maximize those benefits?
0: Well, that's something to look forward to. I used to look forward to being the first journalist in space, but that clearly didn't happen. And <laughs> so I'm doubting that I'd be the first journalist on, in, in an agency like this because that's just being talked about and I'm getting old quickly. So, um,
1: you're never too old to do open source intelligence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the question is, can you keep up with it? I mean, you know, that's the problem, you know, right now there's so many things and inside this little thing, at any rate, I've kept you long enough, um, today, um, this has been a fascinating discussion but I want to ask you before we go, um, and I always do this, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think is important that we all need to know and to be thinking about?
1: I guess it's, it is such a good question. What's the most important thing that I think people will learn from reading my book. And I, the answer is, I hope the most important thing isn't a fact and it's not a reform idea. It's empathy. It's understanding what it is that people who work in the intelligence community do and why it's so difficult. I think we're so polarized as a country and we tend to cast blame so readily. It's an intelligence failure. This policymaker is so stupid or this person is so evil. And I actually think the most important thing that I can teach my undergraduates is empathy, understanding where other people are coming from, whether it's an intelligence officer, uh, someone from a foreign country or someone from a, a different political perspective in the United States.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me on.
0: That's it for this episode of Target USA, coming up in our next episode. It was an unprecedented uh, vote. We suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., talking about the problem that Russia has become. Russia is a permanent member of, of the Security Council, and Russia is responsible for attacking its neighbor compromising uh, all of the principles of the United Nations. We asked her why, since Russia's responsible for so much mayhem, why it's still a member of the Security Council. You know, they're a permanent member of the Security Council. Uh, There are five of us who are permanent members, and that was determined when the UN was established. So there's nothing we can, can do to kick Russia off of the Security Council, but we can isolate them in the Security Council. We can condemn them. That's coming up on the next episode of target USA in the meantime if you have any questions or comments about the program send me an email you can reach me at jgreen@wtop.com. at wtop.com. the letter J the color green one word at whiskey tango Oscar papa jgreen@wtop.com. green at wtop.com also please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter we're at T podcast that's at tango uniform sierra alpha podcast and if you want more national security news you can sign up for my newsletter it's called inside the skiff and you can sign up at wtop.com email i'm jj green and this is target usa
1: the national security podcast
0: Hey, Cobra Kai fans. Come hear what Peyton List has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of
1: training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before. So that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance.
0: Listen to Kicking It With The Coves. Now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts. Hey, DC, are you looking to go in-depth on today's top local news stories? WTOP has you covered on our new podcast, DMV Download.
1: I'm WTOP investigative reporter, Megan Cloherty.
0: And I'm WTOP producer, Luke Garrett. And
1: together, we're the hosts of the DMV Download, debuting Tuesday.
0: Every weekday afternoon, Megan and I will go beyond the headlines with WTOP's reporters to bring you more on the biggest local stories impacting you, our fellow Washingtonians.
1: The DMV Download podcast is presented by Steamfitters Local 602 and available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today
0: so you don't miss an episode. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.